Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to humble me. The virus is still challenging my expectations after two years, and I'm in a constant toggle between thinking we're doing great and, oh no, things are still kind of scary. How about you? We're all living with the virus, and that means something different for everyone. Today on Fifth Emission, Chronicle Health reporter Catherine Ho discusses the COVID-19 treatment that is making that burden of figuring out our personal behavior a little easier. Pfizer's Paxlovid is a five-day course of pills that is now a top recommended treatment if you do get infected with COVID-19. The Biden administration has announced a series of initiatives that would increase the use of the pills. Paxlovid does a great job of lowering your risks of bad outcomes like hospitalizations or death. But not a lot of people are aware of the treatment or how to use it. Catherine is here to explain what you need to know about the pills that were once called a game changer by medical experts. Then I'll chat with Chronicle data reporter Susie Nielsen about how the latest COVID surge in cases is challenging our previous assumptions about how the virus moves. Her recent story shows how wealthier San Francisco neighborhoods may be hit the hardest. We know that health disparities align with income levels. So why is that happening? Susie will explain. Let's start with understanding what we know now about the latest antiviral treatments. Catherine, thanks for being on Fifth Emission. Sure, good to be here. So Catherine, the last time you were on the show, we talked about antiviral pills. And at that time, you called them a game changer. Have they lived up to that claim? I think that is TBD. So I think we're in a really interesting moment right now where the pills have been around for a little while. They've been around for several months, actually, but they've only recently become more available and more accessible because the supply has gotten better. So I think we have yet to see them be a game changer, and I'm not sure we'll even really be able to measure that for a couple of reasons. The first one is, I think, one way to look at whether they're a game changer or not is to see whether they really do prevent, at the community level, most hospitalizations and deaths. So far, you know, the hospitalizations with the current swell or the current wave we've been seeing for the last month or so, the hospitalizations are rising seemingly slower uh, relative to cases than we've seen in the previous surges. But that could also be to a bunch of other things. You know, it could be that the subvariants are milder. It could be that more people are vaccinated now. So the other kind of other side of that question, I think, is, is it a game changer as far as the way people feel about taking risks now? And I think in that sense, it is, at least from, you know, some of the folks that I've interviewed for this story who've taken Paxlovid, they felt like once Paxlovid became available and they knew it was there and they thought they could get it, they felt a little bit more comfortable 
going out and doing things. These are, for the most part, people who have really taken precautions, a lot of precautions, you know, vaccinated, boosted, um, generally avoiding big crowds, things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of people's feelings or, or the way they're kind of thinking about taking risks in their lives, it is a game changer. Yeah, I mean, it seems to be another tool we can add to our tool belt during the pandemic. So it does seem like awareness is growing of this powerful medication. Walk me through a scenario where someone should consider taking Paxlovid. So Paxlovid is for people who are considered higher risk for progressing to severe disease. So initially, when there wasn't a lot of it, it was people who are very, very, very high risk. So severely immunocompromised or undergoing cancer treatments. That was a few months ago. So now more people can get it. You don't have to be quite as high risk to get it. So like right now, if you are overweight or obese, if you are over 65, if you have diabetes or any number of chronic heart you know, lung, kidney disease, you could potentially uh, qualify for Paxlovid. And it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, although if you're unvaccinated, that kind of already puts you at higher risk. Mm -hmm. So if you're a younger person who's relatively healthy, you get COVID, and you're just put out for a few days, like terrible symptoms, would that qualify someone as trying to get their hands on this medication? Probably not if you're a young, generally healthy person and you're vaccinated and you get COVID, you probably won't need it. But we are at a point where if you have, you know, even one kind of underlying condition or you're worried for some reason or another that you might get really sick, I think it's definitely worth a conversation with your doctor. You know, if you have a primary care doctor I would definitely ask them because now it's not a supply constraint issue anymore. Um, And in fact, we just we have a lot of pills sitting around. And the issue now, I think, is people don't know about it. Not enough people know about it. So how would someone go about getting their hands on the pills? Is this a matter of getting a prescription from your doctor, going to the pharmacy? What's needed to obtain something like Paxlovid? Yeah, so you do need a prescription. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, There's a few different ways you could go about it. In general, if you have a primary care doc, that's probably a good bet to go to them first. You know, a lot of doctors right now are not super familiar with it yet since it is a new drug. And there are a lot of potential drug-drug interactions with Paxlovid. A lot of Bay Area counties now actually are setting up uh, phone lines and test-to-treat sites that are specifically dealing with Paxlovid. And I think for people who can't necessarily get the answers from their regular healthcare provider, that would be a good place to go. Um, So for instance, Contra Costa County recently set up a 24-7 advice line, and it's for anyone who lives in the county. It doesn't matter who your regular provider or your insurance is. You call that line. You can talk to advice nurse. They could potentially connect you with the doctor who can prescribe it to see if you're eligible. And I know several other counties have set up or are in the midst of setting up a similar type of system. And one thing that's important to know is that when you take that pill is really important. Is that right? Because it's one thing to get a prescription, but it's urgent to get that prescription as soon as you start feeling symptoms. Tell me more about the timing of when we would take Paxlovid. 
That's right. So it has to be started within the first five days of when your symptoms start. So for a lot of people, you know, they don't get tested until maybe their second or third day of symptoms. And you do have to show a positive test in order to get Paxlovid. So that's been an issue for some people as well, where sometimes you can have symptoms for a couple of days, but you don't test positive until a couple of days after that. And by then, you know, that five-day window is is closing pretty quickly and you kind of have to line everything up before uh, before you're out of time. So that's really been uh, a big challenge for a lot of people. Have there been supply issues with Paxlovid? We had warned about that in our last conversation about antiviral pills. You mentioned that counties are trying to increase access. How has that experience been like for patients? So I think initially it was very, very, very hard to get um, unless you happen to be extremely you know, literate in, in navigating the healthcare system, which even for some doctors, you know, who were trying to get it for family members, they had a hard time doing that initially. I think things are better now, mostly because supply is so much better. Pfizer has distributed thousands more pills around the country. I think the problem right now is an awareness issue. A lot of people were probably confused by the kind of initial messaging around this, right? Which was, you have to be super high risk. And that is changing now. And it's hard to kind of correct that messaging as things go on, because there's just been so much going on with therapeutics. And we're kind of losing the captive audience, because people Mm -hmm. are uh, so fatigued with this pandemic. I think the kind of attitude of a lot of people now is, well, if I get COVID, you know, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, I guess I'll just get COVID and get sick and uh, hope for the best. And now there actually is, uh, you know, plentiful pills. So you don't have to just kind of cross your fingers and hope for the best. You can uh, access these pills if you know where to go. More with Catherine Ho after a quick break. We'll also hear about another new development in the COVID-19 pandemic, Chronicle Data reporter Susie Nielsen took a look at how the latest wave is going to hit wealthy San Francisco neighborhoods hardest. She'll explain why that is. You're listening to Fifth Admission. You can support the newsroom that creates this podcast by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Catherine, another thing we've been hearing about the Paxlovid treatment is that some people have been rebounding after taking the five-day course of pills. That means they relapse back into COVID symptoms. What's happening there? Yeah, so there's been quite a few reports. There have been many people who have finished their five-day course of Paxlovid and started to feel symptoms come back after that or test positive after they had been testing negative. You know, I've talked to some doctors who prescribe Paxlovid and and they note that it's definitely something they've heard anecdotally and it is 
a phenomenon. It's just a little hard to quantify that mm-hmm. right now. And we should add that in the clinical trials for this drug, this was noted in it's like 1.5% or 2%. And it's a little unclear whether those small percentages still hold true now that a lot more people are getting it in the real world. Mm-hmm. But regardless, medical experts that you spoke to seem to have a lot of confidence in the role that these pills are going to play in the pandemic and that people should really consider them to be a tool that we can lean on. Yeah, that's right. Despite those reports of rebounding, the doctors I spoke to um, said it would not affect their decision to prescribe it for someone who they thought would really benefit from it. And I think kind of stepping back, you know, Paxlovid, as you mentioned, is kind of one in a number of options, treatment options we have right now, monoclonals being another one, remdesivir being another one. And I think in totality, these things becoming more available and people having more awareness about it and doctors having, I guess, more education about it and and learning who to prescribe it to and what the drug interactions are. I think we're moving in the right direction here. And I think that's something to keep in mind as, as we all kind of continue living with the virus, we have more and more tools as time goes on to help us deal with it. That's Chronicle Health reporter Catherine Ho. Now let's turn to data reporter Susie Nielsen. New scientific developments and treatments are great for helping us navigate the pandemic, but the pandemic continues to surprise us. Susie analyzed San Francisco COVID data by neighborhood and discovered that the way the virus is spreading throughout the city is different than what we previously assumed. Low-income communities and communities of color have been hit hardest by the virus, but the data and health experts are saying that now it's the turn of wealthy neighborhoods. Susie Nielsen, what's going on here? Why are wealthier neighborhoods at risk of being hit the hardest? So I spoke to George Rutherford, who's a pediatrician and epidemiologist at UCSF, who's been really instrumental in kind of helping inform San Franciscans about pandemic trends. And one thing that he pointed out was prior to this spring, lower income neighborhoods in San Francisco have been disproportionately hit over and over again by the COVID waves. So the Mission, the Bayview, Tenderloin have all seen higher COVID case rates and COVID death rates than wealthier neighborhoods like the Marina, Pack Heights, etc. But he said that this latest surge, this springtime surge, might be spreading differently than the last one for a couple different reasons. The two main ones are that wealthier people are starting to travel out and about again more. So they're going to weddings again, they're going on business trips again, and Additionally, because they haven't been hit as hard as the lower income neighborhoods, people in these neighborhoods have less acquired or natural immunity to COVID. The last big surge prior to this wave was in January, and that hit lower income neighborhoods really hard. So a lot of people still have a fair amount of immunity in those neighborhoods because they got sick. So you did a data analysis to look into this theory from public health experts. What did you find? I found that Rutherford was correct. So I grouped San Francisco's neighborhoods into three buckets. So I looked at neighborhoods that had under $91,000 a year in median household income, between $91,000 and $140,000, and more than $140,000. And the neighborhoods that were making more than $140,000 per household per year on average 
are seeing elevated COVID case rates, as are the middle group, actually. Both neighborhood groups are seeing higher COVID case rates than lower income neighborhoods. And I just checked the data again because we did this story a few weeks ago and that trend has held. Mm. So, I mean, San Francisco's neighborhoods are all pretty high income relative to the rest of the country. Mm -hmm. But, you know, all but the poorer neighborhoods are seeing these increased COVID case rates. So during the Omicron wave, we saw that surges started in the wealthy neighborhoods but then eventually moved to lower income ones. And then that's where the surges got really bad. Explain a little bit more to me why the spread of COVID might move differently now. In the big Omicron surge that happened this winter, we did a story about how the marina at one point had by far the highest case rate in San Francisco. That happened shortly after SantaCon, which we found kind of interesting. <laughs> of course um, it did. <laughs> but yeah, the SantaCon variant um, <laughs> We believe, and we're not 100% sure, but it's plausible that, you know, people in the marina got sick. They interacted with people who worked in essential jobs, who often live in the lower income neighborhoods, and it spread that way. This time, though, again, a lot of these people in lower income neighborhoods were already sick in January. And we know that a previous infection can improve your immunity for months after. Mm -hmm. I got COVID in March and I'm feeling pretty safe still right now mm -hmm. in May. So it's very likely that even though these wealthy neighborhoods are seeing increased case rates, they are not transmitting them as much to the lower income neighborhoods because folks in those neighborhoods have heightened levels of protection right now. So does this boil down to personal behavior mostly according to the public health experts you spoke to? Is this just that they've gotten maybe a little more comfortable, a little cockier about how they move about in the world now, going to weddings or vacations, like you mentioned? I mean, I think that's a big part of it. I think also there's been a lot of changing understanding of how COVID works because the you know new variants are so different from the old ones. I know I personally thought that I was a lot safer than I was just going out into the world again and mingling with people and going to big events because I got boosted, I'm fully vaccinated. We know now that these variants are spreading a lot faster and there's a lot more breakthrough infections. So while you still are probably very protected against deaths and hospitalizations, and we're still seeing low rates of those in San Francisco, you might still be more likely to get an infection right now. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's, it's largely behavior, but also again, these higher income neighborhoods just have less immunity right now um, overall because they have less natural immunity from prior infection. So Susie, obviously the pandemic has revealed a lot of inequities in our society. What does this latest finding sort of say about what we're learning about the pandemic as it relates to disparities? Every single wave besides this one in San Francisco has impacted lower income neighborhoods the hardest. And you're seeing that across the, the country, deaths, hospitalizations, COVID case rates are concentrated in lower income communities, especially Hispanic and Black communities. In California, Hispanic people are suffering the highest death rates by far of COVID in the state. So it's just interesting that we're seeing this inversion happen among the wealthy neighborhoods, just as we have all of these additional tools and resources to fight COVID. It's sort of like, you know, People feel more comfortable because we have all these resources, and so now they're finally getting this mm -hmm. illness. But lower-income folks in these other neighborhoods never got the chance to choose when they were going to accept that risk. Mm -hmm. Susie, 
Thank you so much. I appreciate you talking to me. Thanks so much, Cecilia. Susie Nielsen is a data reporter at The Chronicle. You can find her story about the COVID surge in wealthy San Francisco neighborhoods at sfchronicle.com and on The Chronicle app. That's where you'll also find health reporter Catherine Ho's story on Paxlovid. Thanks to King Kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening.